couple years ago, uh, 2022, there was a guy, there was a church that helped us get started here, and they had some extra like money in their budget at the end of the year, and so they said to us, we would, if you would like to, we'll hire a church consultant um, that can come talk to you. Maybe you didn't even realize there was such a thing as church consultants, but there is a thing for people that uh, come and help churches if they're like, you know, we're trying to do this thing, but we don't quite know how, or we feel like thing, something's off, we, can't, we need some help, outside help. And so they had offered to uh, have this church consultant come and meet with us and talk through things with us. And he, there are several things, this is 2022, and there's several things that uh, he had given us that were really helpful. We kind of made a list of all the action items we could take. Uh, one of them was we hired Connor. I mean, he, we didn't have him on the radar, but one thing was hiring a worship leader, someone to lead us in song. Another was a new location. Uh, we used to meet across from Nico's on Lake Avenue by where Walmart is here, and we would meet in the Door Township room. We'd set up every week, a lot of store stuff there. Uh, but we were feeling like that space, we kind of, uh, we'd been there about five years, that it kind of, um, not worn out our welcome, but it wasn't suiting us quite right anymore. Uh, and so we wanted to move, and so we moved here. But the thing that I found uh, most helpful that uh, the advice he had given me is he asked me, what was the reason that you came here in the first place? And is that still compelling to you? So it was, what was the reason you came here in the first place to start a church? And is that still compelling to you? And obviously the initial answer I would give was, well, yeah, we came here to introduce people to Jesus. Uh, it's in the name, Good News Church. We want people to know the good news of who Jesus is. So we've come here for that. That's what we've always been about. That's why we came here. That's the reason we're still here. Because uh, this church didn't exist eight, eight and a half years ago when so we moved here uh, to start this church. But what I found, he also asked what, you know, that is the reason that we came here still compelling to me. He asked, what drives you? Like, why, why do you do what you do? What's that fire inside of you that is motivating all the other actions? And while I could still give the same answer, I discovered that the fire had kind of gone. You're like, yes, this is still a goal. Introduce people to Jesus, the good news. And I felt, but the fire wasn't there anymore. The way he was saying it, it's like, that, I have the reason, but it's not firing me up anymore, if you want to think of it like that. And so this sent me on uh, a journey in Scripture. And this passage that we're going to be looking at this morning, Luke 18 and 19, uh, the, the words of this series were in the series of, uh, in the Gospel according to Luke, called To Seek and to Save. And there is where we get the words for this series. Jesus says, I've come to seek and to save the lost. And so if you want to know, well, what is Luke's gospel all about? What's the theme? It's Jesus seeking and saving the lost. And, but we're going to, since that's like the capstone in a way of the, the book of like what's summarized, we're kind of going to back up and I'm going to give you this whole journey that I went on when uh, Gordon, that church consultant, asked, what's the reason you do everything you do? And so it took me back to Luke 5, to what uh, I would later think of as a Luke 5 vision. And in Luke chapter 5, it's when Jesus is just starting out on the scene. Uh, he's calling some of his original disciples, some of the 12, like Peter, uh, and then Matthew, uh, who's a tax collector. Matthew's at his tax collecting booth. Uh, people are coming, and he's you know, charging them, getting money for their taxes. And Jesus says to him, Matthew, come and follow me. So he leaves his tax booth behind, and then he comes and follows Jesus. And what Matthew does is he throws this party at his house, uh, and he invites his friends. And who are his friends? Other tax collectors. <laughs> Other people who maybe are kind of like looked down in, on in society. Because if you're a tax collector, you're not going to have the same friends as you had before you were a tax collector. Because now you're working for the Roman government. And the Roman government has conquered your land. And now you are working with the people. You know, there's a show um, on Amazon Prime. It was called Man in the High Castle. And it was basically, what if the Nazis had won? 
And so it's these people living through, uh, what would it be like if, the, if German Nazis were, take, took over half the United States and the other half was given to Japan? What would that be like? And so this, for Matthew, to go and work for Rome would be like somebody saying, yeah, I'm going to go work for the Nazis and be, they've taken over, but I'm going to get a paycheck out of this, like this is how I'm going to save my skin. And this is what Matthew does. And so he throws this party, other tax collectors, those are his co-workers, uh, and other people. And what we find is uh, Jesus is there to meet these people. And there's some religious leaders that look at the party and they grumble. They're like, why is your leader asking his disciples, why is your leader hanging out with all these tax collectors and sinners? And then Jesus says, well, this, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, it's the sick. I've come not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. And so Jesus is saying, I'm like a doctor, and doctors go to sick people. And so I'm going to the sick people. That's why uh, I'm hanging out with them. And what captivated me about this passage that I call a Luke 5 vision for the church, which I probably never actually said out loud to anybody else, but now you're getting here, uh, is that Jesus, there's this group of people. There's people that oppose him, religious leaders who are like, why are you doing this stuff? There's his disciples. There's these tax collectors. And they say, you're hanging out with all these tax collectors and sinners, these people who don't have cleaned up lives, who are broken, who are messy, who have ruined their own lives. Why are you hanging out with them? You should, if you're really who you think you are, who you're saying you are, the Messiah, the King we've been waiting for, you wouldn't be hanging out with all these lowlifes. But this vision that it gives us is that there's this group of people, and the reason they're all there together is Jesus. He's there at the center. And you can, I brought my, our songbook up here. It really illustrates this logo, or our symbol of what you want to think of for our church, is that Jesus is in the center, and there's all these people that are gathered around him. And they're from different backgrounds, different beliefs, and different lifestyles. And some of them don't even know if Jesus, you know, some of them don't like him. They don't like what he's doing. Some of them are just there because Matthew invited them. So they're kind of like, they don't even know about him yet. And that gave me this vision of, that's what the church ought to be like. It should be this place where Jesus is at the center. And the reason we're all together, uh, whether we believe in him or not, whether we're trusting him or not, whether we're still figuring it out, or whether we've been following him for 30 years, what brings us all together is this person at uh, the center of it. I'm going to run really quick back here because I forgot to grab one of these. This is relevant. Actually, I just have to go to the bathroom. I'm going to just wait here. So, and then... Uh, this is this card, this Discover Who Jesus is card, uh, is how I ended up articulating it. And so it asks, are you curious about who Jesus is, what he did, and what he taught? Do you want to explore what Jesus, Christianity, and the Bible are all about? You can do that at Good News Church. We are unapologetically Jesus-centered, and we're a safe place for you to explore Jesus for yourself. You can be real about your anger, sadness, and confusion. You can come as you are with your doubts, questions, and skepticism. No pressure, no judgment, no expectations. You are welcome at Good News Church. And what I saw in Luke 5 was the first statement. We're unapologetically Jesus-centered and a safe place for anybody to come and discover who Jesus is. And so there's this vision. But Luke 5 connects with Luke 15. And in Luke 15, you have another situation where Jesus is hanging out with tax collectors and sinners, people that were looked on as like, they've ruined their lives. What are you doing hanging around with them? And so they're like, why are you hanging out with them? And Jesus gives these three stories. Uh, and the first one is, well, um, if a shepherd loses a sheep and it goes off, uh, the shepherd goes after that lost sheep to bring it back home. Then he gives a second story. If a lady loses like some money in her house, uh, she's going to look all around her house until she find, finds the thing that was lost. Then the third story is the longest one. It actually combines those first two stories because one is 
there's a sheep that's lost away from home, and then there's a coin lost at home. And in this next story that Jesus says, he says, there's a man who had two sons, and the, the younger son came to the, the father and said, I want my inheritance now. Basically, I kind of just care about the money here. I just actually wish you were dead now because I want the money. Can you give me my inheritance? And so, okay, the dad uh, liquidates things and gives him his inheritance and splits it up. He says, okay, you can have it. And then he goes off to a far country, we're told, and then he spends it all on reckless living. And this story is famously called the prodigal son, and the word prodigal uh, really means reckless. He goes and lives recklessly, uh, and then he uses up all the money, and then he goes and he starts working for a, a pig farmer, and he's so hungry, so out of money, that he wishes he could eat what the pigs were eating. And all of a sudden he realizes, well, the servants in my dad's house have it better than me right now. I know what I'll do. It says he comes to himself. It's almost like he has this awakening, this realization, like, what am I doing here? <laughs> Why did I run away from home to go and hope I get pig food? I, I've disgraced my dad, but servants are even better than I'm being treated right now, so I'm going to go ask to be a servant to my dad's house. And he has this whole apology worked out of what he's going to do. And as he's coming home, his dad, maybe you could, you probably heard me tell this story, or you've maybe heard of it, but what would you expect? This son, I wish you were dead, I want my inheritance, runs off, spends it all, and then dad's sitting on the porch. And what would you expect dad to think? Well, this ought to be good. Or like, you know, what, what does, who does he think he is coming back to this house? What actually happens is the dad sees him a long way off, and then he runs out to him, and he embraces his son, and kisses him, and then his son is trying to say, Father, I've sinned against you and against heaven. I sh I'm not even worthy to be your son. And his dad cuts him off and says, he just doesn't even like listen to the apology. He's like, go kill the fatty calf. That was like a special um, calf saved for special occasions. Go kill the fatty calf. Tell the neighbors, tell the family, we're throwing a party. Go get him, go get him the, the, my, you know, my robe and the ring and the sandals. Because he comes home, he's all dirty, he doesn't have clothes, not necessarily naked, but clothes falling apart. It's like, put all the best stuff on him. It's like he fully restores him as a son. The son doesn't even get out his apology. He's like, I shouldn't even be treated as a son. Just treat me as a servant. His dad interrupts him and is like, you know, I'm going to put all the things back on you to show my son is back. And I've welcomed him and accepted him. And he's back. And so they throw this party. And then the older brother comes. And then from off, he sees a party's going on. He's been out working, you know, for his dad in the field or whatever it is. And so then he comes to the party and asks the servant, what's going on in there? Well, your 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 brother. He was lost and now he's found. We didn't know where he was and your dad has received him back and so we're throwing a party. And he doesn't go into the party, but the dad eventually comes out to him and says, uh, son, what are you doing out here? Why don't you come into the party? How could you, how could you throw this party for him? How could you kill the fattened calf for him? How could you make this special occasion? I've been here working and slaving. He actually says the word. I've been slaving for you all these years. You've never thrown me a party like this. And the dad says, well, it all belonged to you all along. Like you could have have the fatty cat, like everything's yours, but would you come in? It's right for us to celebrate your brother and that he was lost. We thought he was dead, but now he's alive. He's lost, but now he's found. And the story ends there. And the question is, will the older brother go into the party? Is he going to join the party? And what Jesus is telling in this story, because remember, he tells the story because people are grumbling. Why are you hanging out with all these people who have wasted their lives, lived recklessly? In other words, Older brothers are saying, why are you hanging out with all these younger brothers that have wasted everything? They've wasted their lives. And Jesus is inviting them. This is why. Because the Father's heart is for them. That he runs out to them. That when any younger brother who's messed everything up turns back to him, God runs out 
and embraces him in love with affection and he restores him into the family. And, but then he's also saying, but you guys are lost too. Because look, this is the party. This is the kingdom party. This is what God is doing, welcoming sinners back home. And they're standing outside of the party right now saying, they're looking at him being like, how could you throw a party for them? So Jesus' invitation to the older brothers too that are judgmental, critical, who spent their lives following the rules, he says to them, you've got the wrong attitude here. I'm doing what the Father wants. And so he's asking, will you join the party as well? And that brings us to Luke 19, where we're at now. Let me just read the story that we have there. Luke 19. Uh, This would be... And we're going to kind of start in the middle of this passage and then go outwards like a sandwich, if that makes any sense. We're starting with the meat, and we'll go to the lettuce or something, and then we'll go to the bread. Okay, so Luke 19 is the middle. It says, He, meaning Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold... There was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. When they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he, is also, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And so once again, situation, sinners, tax collectors, Jesus hanging out with them, people grumbling, saying, Why are you spending your time with them? And what's interesting is we're told that Zacchaeus is seeking Jesus. That was in the first verses. Zacchaeus is seeking to see who Jesus was. And then we're told Jesus is seeking and to save the lost. And so Zacchaeus is this person that Jesus has come for and that uh, gets invited into the kingdom. And we'll come back to that word lost later. But these questions, why is Jesus doing what he's doing? And he keeps saying, because this is God's heart, that he wants to bring people home, both younger others, and older brothers, people who've had their lives together but who are now judgmental and critical, think they're better than other people, and younger brothers who've said, you know, where freedom and fulfillment is found is me going out and doing what I want to do. I'm going to get away from home, and I'm going to live my own life. And in those two situations, you have one who's lost far away from home and one who's lost close to home. And Jesus is also seeking not just the younger brothers, but he's seeking the grumblers too. He wants them to come into the party. And then he tells this parable right after this. He tells this confusing parable, uh, but hopefully we can make a little sense of it. So in verses, uh, you know what? I'm wondering if I should read it all. It's long. You know, we'll read it. I'll just do it super fast. No, I'm just kidding. So 1911, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a noble man went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. First came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. 
And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. And then another came, saying, Lord, this is, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I'll condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. So this is a parable. And in parables, something we have to be careful for uh, of is not to make every single element mean something. Because uh, parables are not allegories. In an allegory, each element has some sort of like connection with something in real life. Uh, but parables usually are told for kind of one main point, to make one uh, kind of response or one uh, point something out. And it, we're told why Jesus tells us one. It says, uh, some, uh, he was, because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So one way to read this is what's about to happen is Jesus is that nobleman and he's going to come to Jerusalem and he's going to be killed. But he's going to go away. He's going to go back to heaven. He's going to go off to receive his kingdom in heaven. But he's going to come back at some point. And when he comes back at that point, he's going to have servants, and he's going to talk to his servants. He's going to find out what each one basically made with what he had given them. Like, I've given you resources. How would you use them for me? Or another way it could be translated is that he's going to see, did you do business in my name? Because when he's going off to receive this kingdom, well, maybe he'll never come back. So we'll just, just wait and see. But were they willing to trust him that he's coming back? And they're willing to put his name on themselves. Uh, and then, of course, then there's enemies, people who didn't want him to be king. This would mean the people in Jerusalem that came and, and killed him. And so when he comes back, there's going to be judgment. One way to read it. Uh, I think there's a way that I don't have the definitive way to read this, but a way that I think makes a little more sense. Because then you're like, well, wait, the one servant says he's a severe and harsh man. Does that describe Jesus? Does that describe God? And then he kills his enemies like this. And what does it mean about these servants? Like, what the, the one, what happens to him? He's just, you know, reprimanded. He says, you're this evil person. I didn't want to do anything. And so another way to read it is that there actually were an event, like a headline a newspaper event, where King Herod, who was reigning over that area, uh, set there by the Romans, had to go off to Rome, go off to a far place, a nobleman, to receive the kingdom and then come back. And then it happened again when Herod the Great died, his son Archelaus, uh, that the people didn't really want him to be king, but in order to be, if he wanted to be king and be called king, he had to go to Rome and ask Caesar uh, permission uh, if that could happen. But the, the Romans didn't really like calling people king because that's kind of competition with Caesar. Um, but he goes off with his little entourage of family and friends. Uh, but what also follows him is citizens that he ruled over. So they followed him, these people that go to uh, protest his kingship. And so the, in front of all these people, he gives his case why he should be made king. But these people that followed him from where he rules uh, are saying, we don't want him to be king. And so what happens is Caesar says, well, we're going to call you Ethnarch. And if you want the title king, you're going to have to earn that. And then he comes back and he has you know, people that were kind of against him. And now he deals with them harshly. And so if that's the case, which I think a core, it's like an actual event in history. And Jesus is saying, uh, people are saying, well, 
he, he just told Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to your house. And now he's going up to Jerusalem, and people are thinking the kingdom's about to happen. He's going to boot out the Romans. He's going to defeat them. He's going to set everything right. And Jesus is saying, well, wait a minute. If you're going to live like Zacchaeus is living, a tax collector who is now giving money back, and he's messing up the system. If you're going to refuse to be part of this system where the government is breathing down your neck, where you're giving away money, where you're not making the money you're supposed to for the government, there's going to be consequences. The kingdom's salvation right now doesn't mean that this isn't risky. If you're going to live like Zacchaeus, look, the kingdom's not coming fully right now. The system, the Romans, the Jewish leaders, they're going to oppose you. And so this story is told to say salvation isn't what you think it is right now that you aren't possibly going to lose your lives. And so we see there's this parable. Points up there's people that oppose Jesus' kingdom. And so if we back up, we're going to the, I guess it's actually just the bread of the sandwich, going to 1831 through 43. Some are seeing it and some aren't. Some see and some don't. And so in 1831, it says, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem. And everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they'll kill him. On the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what is said. So Jesus is saying, look, whatever your expectations are, I'm about to die. And this is just crazy talk. I mean, if you've like been following this guy around, and you think he's the one that's going to you know, liberate our nation... And he's like, actually, I'm going to go die at the hands of the people that I'm supposed to defeat. Wait, what? And it, it says they didn't understand it. It was hidden from them. But then, right after this, they're not seeing it. But then right after this, we have this story of blindness and seeing. Verse 35. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired with this men. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded them to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God and all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. So the disciples, they're not seeing it. They're not getting it. But now this guy recovers his sight. They're like put together. This guy has this faith. He's seeing who Jesus is. He's seeing who it means and what it means for him to be coming. And Jesus says, your faith has made you well. Your faith has saved you. So people not seeing it and this guy recovering his sight. And then remember Zacchaeus. He was too short to see Jesus. And so he climbs up the tree to seek Jesus and to see him. And then Jesus sees him and calls him down. And then he says this parable that we read. People aren't going to get it. They're not going to see what's happening. They're going to oppose it. And so then, let's skip to the other side of the sandwich and see that there's another group of people that things are hidden from. Some see it and some don't. So this is 1928. And when he said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you'll find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this. The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? They said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way, 
down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were, were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known in this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for the people were hanging on his words. So to some people, it's hidden. Some people see. Some people are singing Jesus' praises. Some people are saying, rebuke your disciples. Let them stop them from doing that. And he says, he's weeping. Other people are praising God. As he's going into Jerusalem, he is weeping because he knows they're going to reject him. Him. He says, I wanted earlier in, um, I don't remember the chapter, it was earlier in uh, the Gospel according to Luke. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, I wish I could have gathered you under my wings like a mother hen gathers her chicks, and I want to save you and take care of you. And yet he sees, You didn't recognize the time of your visitation. When your own God, you've been praying to come back and visit you, came to you, and you didn't recognize him. And we're told Zacchaeus was seeking Jesus. Jesus is seeking and saving the lost. Well, we're told in this last verse that they were seeking to destroy Jesus. All the same word. And really, they asked Jesus to rebuke his disciples because they don't believe what the disciples are saying. Why would he get, would he get rebuked if, that, if what they're saying is true? And the reality is that they're lost, too. They're lost. They don't see it. They don't get it. They don't get what God's doing. And they think the Romans are a problem, but Jesus is going to come into the temple. What does he do? He, he throws things over. He undoes it because he's saying the Romans aren't your problem. Your religion is your problem. The way that you are going about this, that he doesn't go to the Roman guards and boot them out. He goes to the temple and says this is where the problem is. The problem isn't out there. It's in here. And he says you, this has become a den of robbers, and robbers, criminals, could run off and make dens in the caves. And he's saying, this temple has become a place that you are hiding from justice, like a robber would hide from justice in the cave. You have been mistreating the people, and you leaders are hiding in the temple, your religious cave, from justice. And so, going back to that word, to be lost... That Jesus says, I've come to seek and save the lost. And we see some people see it, they see what he's doing, see what he's about, they get it, and some people don't. But I love the word he uses, lost. Like even the people that he just said, you know, really tough things to, very challenging things to, what does he look at them as? He calls them lost. And if you think about what is it like to be lost, uh, maybe you at some point got lost, you know, separated from your parents like at a, at a carnival or a fair or something. Um, but some, there's been a couple times when Hudson and I might be somewhere or playing something, you know, he might be going around through the aisles in a store, and all of a sudden he doesn't know where I am. And that look that of, oh my gosh, where, where, where's my dad? Like that, that feeling of lostness, that this word Jesus gives for people, that even people opposed to him, is a compassionate one. That these, they're lost, that they need to be found. And then on the other side, what does it feel like to be found if you've been lost? Like the relief, uh, the safety, 
uh, all of a sudden, oh, like I'm, I'm okay now. I haven't, I've, I've been, I've been found. That feeling of being found when you are lost uh, is a great feeling. But first, we need to admit that we're lost. That even we all can feel it. Doesn't matter if someone believes in Jesus or not. We can feel the lostness. We're trying to find our way. We're trying to find home again. And then that feeling of salvation is being found by Jesus. That it's not primarily that we are seeking Him. It's not what Christianity is. Uh, most other religions are, as I understand them, is we people seeking after God, but Jesus, no, I'm seeking after you, and you never would seek after me unless I was already seeking after you. And Jesus, seeking and saving, uh, is the Father running out to us with his open arms to embrace us in love and radically undeserved and unearned love. But the question is, how can the Father welcome us home like this? How could he welcome either of his brothers either of his sons home like this. The reality is that he pays the cost of both the lost sons. That the younger son spent it all and then he doesn't come home and the father says, okay, you've got to work for 20 years as a servant to pay that off. No, the father just absorbs the cost. But then you might think, well, the older son, what did he lose the father? Well, he's ruining his reputation right now because He's throwing this party for his younger son, and the older son is standing outside, the one who should be the firstborn, the one that's going to take over the family business, the one who should be honoring his father, is refusing to go in. And so what do all the neighbors see and all the family? There's this uh, the older son dishonoring his father, saying, I refuse to celebrate my brother coming home, and I refuse to celebrate your grace and your love and your forgiveness for him. He's saying, I don't like who you are, Dad. I'm not going to celebrate this. And so both, well, the father's going to pay for that, out of his own reputation. And so the father pays for both of his sons' lostness. When we look at the cross that you know on the window, it's like the cross is awful. It was a form of torture and execution that the Romans invented to you know, somebody who's rebelling against the empire. Uh, well, I, we know what to do with them. You take them, you nail them to a cross, put them in a public place so everyone can see that's what happens if you get out of line. That's what happens if you go against us. But then Jesus, he didn't rebel against the Romans. He wasn't going against the Romans. But well, you see when he's entering, you didn't know the time for peace. That if you keep going down this path, Jerusalem, what's going to happen is there's going to be barricades. This temple's going to be torn down. And that happens in 70 AD. That the Romans come and they knock down the temple. And it's not there to this day. And that's what happens. He's saying, if you're going down this road of this way, you're relating to the world, to the Romans, like it's going to end in destruction. And so, but Jesus dies as a rebel in their place, not against Rome, but against God. That he's going into this city. They're seeking to destroy him. And Jesus is dying in their place for seeking to destroy them. Their opposition to God. That God came to visit you and you said, we don't want it. Actually, we're going to kill you if you don't uh, get out of here and, or get in line. And Jesus dies for that kind of sin. We all live with a sense of feeling not at home. This book, I don't know why I bring the books, but uh, there's a quote I want to share with you from this book. Um, this guy's basically going through a church leader from the 4th century named Augustine, and he calls us a real-world spirituality for restless hearts. And he calls Augustine the patron saint of restless hearts. And he goes through what Augustine wrote and shows how that actually applies to us today. And he says, uh, what if we actually looked at what this life is on this world as we're like refugees? You think of a refugee that they've had to leave a place and they're heading to another place that they've never been to 
but that's where they're hoping to find home. And so let me just read a little of what he says. He says, imagine a refugee spirituality, an understanding of human longing and estrangement that not only honors those human experiences of not-at-homeness, but also affirms the hope of finding a home, finding oneself. The immigrant is migrating toward a home she's never been to before. She will arrive in a strange land and in ways that surprise her come to say, I'm at home here, not least because someone is there to greet her and say, welcome home. The goal isn't returning home, but being welcomed home in a place you weren't born, arriving in a strange land and being told you belong here. The Christian life is one of migration, a quest for a home one has never seen, and joy is arriving at the home you've never been to. And so he says, he talks about that we all have these restless hearts that we're, we're looking for home, and it's like, but I grew up in a home, and I was born on this planet, but yet something about it, I don't feel at home, like something's not quite right, like I'm looking for that thing. And then this reality of being found by Jesus and saying, follow me, I'm taking you to the home that you were made for. And what do you find when, if imagine being a refugee, that you had to flee your country, and I mean, this is basically like the life of every human being, is that there's violence and injustice and there's suffering in the world. And so we're these refugees looking for a home where it's going to be safe and secure. And imagine finally getting there after all the suffering, all the dangers, and oh, I can relax, I can rest, there's joy, there's peace. I've been welcomed, I've been told I belong here. I didn't belong out there, but now I feel that here. So that restlessness that we live with, then Jesus is saying it's the younger brothers and the older brothers. And he's saying the Father wants you both to come home into this. And he gets to this place where he's like, what, what is my mission? Why did God send me? Well, Jesus is the embodiment of that welcoming, loving, embracing, the radical grace of God that's running out to us. I mean, that's what the cross is. It's this God running out to us saying, I'll pay for it all. I don't care how much you've done. I'll relieve you of the penalty for all the wrong you've done against me. And he's running out to us with these arms and saying, if you will just let me, I will do it. And Jesus says, what I've come to do is seek and save the lost. You people, all of you feel lost out there. I've come, there's a home for you to come back to. And Jesus says, I'm coming to find you. And this image we've been using this year, uh, becoming a campfire of God's love. And if you think about being lost, you're lost in the dark. And if you see a fire, there's like, there's light there. There's warmth, that means there's people, maybe food, and moving towards it to think, I'm going to be able to see things or meet people or be taken care of here. And for us to be a campfire of God's love, we want to invite the lost to warm themselves by the fire of God's love for them, that there's people lost. And Jesus sends us out as a search and rescue party. Um, and imagine you're lost and being found by a search and rescue party. And it's like, oh, I'm safe. I'm going to be brought back home now. That's what Jesus sends us out into, into a dark, cold world. He wants us to be a campfire of, of his love, uh, of God's love for the world. Let's pray. Father, we, we know the fear and the restlessness of being lost. We've all felt it. Even if we call ourselves Christians, followers of Jesus, we still have times where we try to make this world our home and how it just does not feel like home. There's always something wrong, something off, something bothering us, something threatening us. And so we try to make it our home, but we can't. But God, would you help us to run back to you, to come to ourselves, to awaken to the reality of our situation and come back home to you. Would you help us to see you as running out to us every single time that we wander, stray, or mess up, that 
we do not have to clean ourselves up before we come back to you, but you're the one who cleans us up. You hug us even in our dirtiness. So God, would you help us to see you that way, to see you like Jesus saw you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. <coughs>